You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. So everyone with me, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. This is the word of our Lord. I want us to begin with a rather sad admission made by an American author and columnist from the Depression era. Uh, His name is uh, James Agee. He's best known for his uh, reporting on poor sharecroppers in the Cotton Belt during the days of the Great Depression. He spent some eight weeks in Alabama to learn the stories of poverty-stricken cotton farmers. He's also known, and this was from later in his career, as the screenwriter of the 1951 movie, The African Queen. When A.G. turned 29, just 29, he had already graduated from Harvard. He had worked for six years in New York City with one of the largest publishing houses in the world. He had already, at age 29, published a prize-winning collection of his own poetry. And more and more, he was steadily gaining the attention of the literary world. In 1938, James Agee wrote an essay, famous essay, an essay reflecting upon his growing up years in Tennessee. The essay is set in 1915, when he's just six years old. He describes a beautiful summer evening in his middle-class neighborhood when families have just finished supper and all the dads are standing in their front yards, watering the lawn, wearing t-shirts and suspenders, having taken off their dress clothes. Moms are tidying the kitchens. The kids of the neighborhood, as you can imagine, are running around, hollering, playing. Just as the grass is almost about to dry and the sun's beginning to set, his mom and his dad spread out a quilt on the lawn. Just like most other families, they sit together. Mom and dad, James and his little sister, watch the sky, listen to the cars drive by, and they just talk as a family. And in his essay, A.G. writes, at the very, at the very end of that essay, he says, after a little, I am taken in and put to bed. Sleep, soft smiling, draws me unto her. 
and those receive me who quietly treat me as one familiar and well-beloved in that home. This is a quintessential family scene, beautifully told by a wonderful author. But A.G. continues in this essay, the essay's not done, and he writes this, having just been laid down to sleep after such an enchanting summer evening, he says, but sleep will not, will not, not now, not ever, will not ever tell me who I am. And the essay ends. It just stops right there. And what you don't know is that this actually, this summer, this was the last summer that James Agee spent with his father who died in an automobile accident that winter. Agee's mom sent him to boarding school and thus this 29-year-old successful man reflects upon his life without dad. And he still wonders, at age 29, who will tell him who he is? You know, last week, We look at Matthew 21. We looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I, I challenged you to consider the most pressing question of your entire lives. Who is this man? And that is the question of the age. That is the most serious question you will ever be asked. Jesus asks it of his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say I am? And every human being on earth needs to answer this question while there is breath in his or her lungs. Jesus will return, and you will not escape without knowing who this man is. But this week, I want us to ask another question. Notice that Jesus says and does very little in our passage. What we notice instead is that several others are the actors, the, and they respond to Jesus. They give us an indication that they have in this scene realized something about themselves, the women in particular. The resurrection has been their teacher, and I want us to examine the various responses to the resurrection so that each of us might realize that the resurrection of Jesus has a tremendous impact upon who we are as human beings. The resurrection is what tells us who we are. Let me just say up front that this passage teaches us that the response of the resurrection ought to be worship. The response of the resurrection ought to be worship. That is, if you were to understand who you are, and if I am to truly understand who I am, then we, all of us, need to respond to the resurrection by worshiping the one who is resurrected. And as we kind of switch gears to look at some of these initial responses in our scene to the resurrection, let me first begin with a consideration of the setting because I I think that some find this to be a bit confusing. But notice in verse 1, Matthew highlights the day of the week, the dawn of the first day of the week. Verse 1. It's almost as if Matthew believes he is reporting a real historical event. And so he is. This event happened on the day after the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday. So the resurrection happened on a Sunday. Sunday then becomes the regular day for corporate worship in the New Testament church. Paul tells us that the Corinthian church met on the first day of the week, Sunday, 1 Corinthians 16.2. And the gospel writer Luke describes a worship service in his own hometown of Troas, and he describes it this way, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Acts chapter 20. And of course, Sunday is the day that the Apostle John receives his visions from Jesus, and he calls it the Lord's Day. 
This day of Jesus' resurrection Sunday is the first day of the week, and this has been the day celebrated by the church as the Lord's Day ever since. It's why we gather Sunday morning. Every Sunday commemorates the resurrection of our Lord. And as the resurrection happened on a Sunday, this means that Jesus was in the tomb for the latter part of Friday. Sometimes you'll read in Scripture that this is called the day of preparation. The latter part of Friday, all day Saturday, and then the early part of Sunday. And by Jewish reckoning, this is three days, which was an Old Testament pattern that I want to share with you a bit later. But for now, bear in mind that the third day was a time that Jesus told his disciples that they must expect. After spending two years with his disciples, proving to them that he was the Messiah of the Old Testament, he then spends his last year helping them to see that there was a looming third day that they are to expect. Matthew 16.21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. On three separate occasions, the Bible tells us that Jesus speaks to his disciples this sobering news. But we can assume that this was a much-discussed subject among Jesus and his disciples. Even the religious leaders of the day, they hear through the gossip mill that this Jesus has been telling folks that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Even the religious leaders are catching wind of this. And then later, on the very day that we have just read about this morning, Jesus is going to visit with his disciples in his glorified body, and he's going to say this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he goes on, he says, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. These are words uttered by Jesus later the same afternoon of his resurrection. And during the last year of Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught his disciples that they would witness with their own eyes a third-day event. The most sacred third-day event would be the one that followed his betrayal, his rejection, abuse, and death. He told his disciples that on the third day, he will be raised. Now, This has to do with the very near future of Jesus' relationship with the disciples. It's one thing for Jesus to say that he is the Messiah of the Old Testament, but isn't it something altogether different when he says that with your very eyes, you are going to witness me dying? The disciples will see his body as a soulless corpse and then see that same body reanimated. This is the third day. And what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to look at how Matthew describes this third day unfolding, beginning with the response of creation itself. It it may seem odd to consider a natural event, this great earthquake of verse 2, a response to God's work of resurrection, and I agree. What Matthew tells us, I don't believe, is a natural event. It is a supernatural one that by God's command marks the occasion of the angels descending from heaven and rolling back that stone. This angel is given the glorious task of rolling the stone. And Peter is later in in his ministry, right? I want to remind you of this 30 years from this point. Peter is going to write that angels long to look at the things of redemption. Even now, today, angels long to look at the things of redemption. And this angel 
saw that redemption, preeminently the work of redemption. And God, who has shown his authority over creation already uh, at the death of Jesus, which was accompanied by a profound darkness and an earthquake, God now commands an earthquake to mark this event, as one commentator says, to remove all doubts, to openly manifest God's glory. Creation responds to God's will to commemorate his own son's resurrection. But there seems to be something more in this God-commanded earthquake. Now, you may not realize this, but numerous Old Testament scriptures refer to the third day as a day of special significance. Just a couple of examples. Um, one of the images of a third day uh, happens when Israel is anticipating entering into the promised land. And before the, the Jordan River has actually been peeled back so that they might cross, uh, God tells Moses to have these people wait for three days before their miraculous crossing into the promised land. And it'll happen on the third day. Jonah, of course, we know, was in the belly of the great fish until the third day. Earlier in our service this morning, I had us look at this passage from Hosea for a reason. He is the last prophet of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is about to be torn to pieces by the Assyrians. And yet, God says to Hosea, tell these people, these people of a great despair, that they should expect a great revival of salvation on the third day. That's a third day picture. And third day, third day shows up in the Old Testament as being the uh, bringing on the tidings of something remarkable. But the greatest third day event in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 19, one I believe that is echoed here in the resurrection of our Lord, the Hebrew people just having been miraculously delivered from Egypt. You remember the story? And having arrived at Mount Sinai, are told by God to wait for three days. God says to Moses, tell the people... Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And not just this, but God tells the people, be ready for the third day. Isn't that interesting? They've traveled from Egypt. They arrive at the foothills of Mount Sinai, and everyone has to stop to hear God say to the people, get ready for the third day. How tragically and almost pointlessly melodramatic God seems to be right here. How would you like to have to camp for three days, two nights, at the base of this mountain, in the very shadows of this mountain, but not to touch it, not even the edge of it? I would go to bed at night wondering where the edge was. I wouldn't sleep easily. The mountain is dangerous, and I would feel it every night I went to bed. But God says, wait. And on the morning of the third day, God touches that mountain. At his command, the static energy of the air is released, terrifying peals of lightning and thunder pelt the mountain, and from beneath, the earth's crust cracks and rumbles and ejects steam as from a malfunctioning kiln. Creation responds to God's coming near to the Hebrew people. Exodus 19, please don't forget that the most significant third day scene in the Old Testament. God makes His presence felt on that third day. He reveals His holy character in the Ten Commandments. He gives Moses instructions on how to build an altar, and he has to take these instructions to the people. Here are the laws of the Ten Commandments, and here are the instructions to build an altar, because you are going to need to pour blood out on that altar 
because of your failure to follow these Ten Commandments. The lightning, the thunder, the earthquake, the steam would serve to mark God's holiness, but also to mark the people's lack of holiness. And when our Savior is resurrected, there is an earthquake. And you really get a picture of creation's response to God's descent to earth to touch this tomb is to understand the response of the soldiers. It's on this third day that our great God visits the tomb, sending an angel who descends from heaven with an appearance like lightning. And Matthew tells us that the earth rumbles at His coming. The large rock covering the tomb has been sealed by the authority of the most powerful empire of the known world. Nobody would dare break that seal, and the soldiers are there to make sure. And as the power of God releases seismic energy from the earth's crust, so too does His power break loose the emperor's seal on that stone. And on this third day, on this third day, God comes to His people and He makes Himself known. On the third day at Mount Sinai, God terrorizes the many lawbreakers of Israel. But on this third day in Jerusalem, God comes in satisfaction for His lawkeeper to release Him from the tomb. Peter will so eloquently preach this in 40 days. Peter will say, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. On the third day at Mount Sinai, God gave the lawbreakers instructions for an altar to place the blood of their sacrifice on. But on this third day, God accepts the blood of the law keeper as the once and for all sacrifice. And just as the Hebrew people at Mount Sinai were terrified, verse 4 tells us that the Roman guards, men of war, were so internally stirred up that they fell to the ground as dead men. Now, I suspect that these Roman guards were prepared for any and every enemy that might confront them. But they were not prepared for the one thing that they needed most of all. They need a God who will reconcile Himself to them. A pleased God. A God ready to accept them even though they had been party to the killing of His only begotten Son. They need a God who has no penalty to exact on them because the lawkeeper was also a penalty payer. Grace had been extended to them, but they'd rather die. Exactly what they need showed up and they'd rather die. Now, this is pure speculation. I'm admitting this up front. But I wonder if Jesus paused as he stood over the paralyzed bodies of these two soldiers. He exits the tomb for sure. And these men are lying there, suited up for war, as if they're dead. And I wonder if Jesus paused and looked down on them. I wonder if he pitied them. Standing over them, he knew them when they jeered at him, spat on him, 